0: I am speaking to you on developing a personal purpose statement. We're here at the beginning of the year. And I don't know if you've ever thought about a purpose statement for your life, for your family. But I want you to think with me about that here today. Probably the best way to begin is by asking you some questions. Would you you think in your mind with me as I ask these questions? Number one, why do you exist? Why do you exist? Are you just a product of chance or fate or has your life been planned by God? Hopefully as a believer, you'd say, I know my life was planned of God. He placed me in this family, in this time period, in this country, my life is planned of God. Second, what are you becoming? What are you becoming? Is it fate or or circumstances that is shaping your life? Or are you actively involved in God's process of what we call sanctification? What are you becoming? Are you allowing the circumstances to just kind of carry you along? Or are you saying, I know God's at work in my life, and this process of sanctification is active. I'm becoming what God wants me to be. Third, why are you here? Don't say, well, my wife made me come. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm trying to set a good example for my kid. No, why are you here on earth? Why are you here? What are you to do? What is your calling? That's, That's what this question deals with. This addresses mission, purpose. Every single one of us has a mission, has a purpose that God has ordained for your life. Don't miss it. Don't waste your life. Fourth question, how are you to conduct yourself? How are you to live as you fulfill your calling, maybe we would say? Are there guidelines? Are there instructions that you must follow if you're going to achieve success, if you're going to achieve what God wants you to become? So think with me as we try to answer these questions. Why do we exist? What are you becoming? Why are you here? How are you to live? And our job as believers is not to develop or invent the purposes Christ has for us, but to discover and implement the purposes that God has for us. So we simply have to discover and then implement them into our lives. So I would like to assist you today in developing a personal purpose statement. Maybe you've never done that before. Probably many of you have, but maybe some of you haven't. Developing a personal purpose statement. And I would ask you, maybe you're not normally a note taker. And I don't say you gotta take notes in church, but maybe today would be a good day to take some notes. Just jot down some of the outline that you'll see on the screen. Dawson Trotman said this. Dawson Trotman was the founder of the Navigators, that uh, discipleship ministry, soul-winning discipleship ministry. He says, thoughts disentangle themselves when they pass through the lips and through the fingertips. I agree with that. When we have to verbalize or write down what our thoughts are, they become much clearer to us. So thoughts crystallize as they pass through our lips and over across our fingertips. The English essayist Francis Bacon said this, reading maketh a full man, speaking a ready man, writing an exact man. That's a great statement as well. In other words, we read and it fills up our mind, but if we have to speak, it makes us get ready. And writing makes us very exact with our usage of words. So, reading maketh a full man, writing maketh an exact man, speaking maketh a ready man. So, let's do some writing. Let's do some remembering here this morning. In other words, until we think our purpose through and we write it down, we really can't pursue it. We really can't complete it until we really put it to words. And let me give you some guidelines about purpose statements. Let me give you three guidelines. Number one, make it biblical. We're Christians, so hopefully our purpose statement would be biblical. Make your purpose statement biblical. We don't decide what God wants us to become or how he wants us to behave. We discover it. That's why we study the Bible. Make it biblical. Number two, make it memorable. Make it memorable. A narrow mission is a clear mission. In other words, a focused mission is a clear mission. If, you're, if your mission is broad, it's not going to be focused. It's not going to be narrow, and you'll never complete it. A narrow mission is a clear mission. Nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. Nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. If we were to say, my purpose is to glorify God, we'd say, well, yeah, of course. That's good. The Bible teaches that, but that's very general. That's not specific at all. How do you plan to accomplish glorifying God? Now, I have to tell you, as a pastor, I preach thousands. I preach well over 3,000 sermons here in this church. I preach thousands of sermons, and I realize people don't remember my sermons There might be an exceptional bright person out there that might remember my sermons, but most people don't remember your sermon. They remember what you repeat, okay? So when I repeat things, it isn't because I'm doddering and becoming, you know, subject to Alzheimer's or something. I hope not. Uh, I repeat them because on purpose. I repeat them because I want you to remember them. So we we remember what is repeated. That's true in teaching. That's true in preaching. That's true in parenting. Their kids remember what we repeat. And so we want to make it memorable. That's why John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We remember that. We remember uh, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. We remember that. That a man's not judged by the the color of his skin, but the content of his character. We remember that. So make it memorable. You've heard me say success is finding, following, and fulfilling the will of God. Make it memorable. Make your purpose statement memorable so you can repeat it and you can tell others about it. Make it biblical. Make it memorable. Third, make it measurable. Make it measurable. You want to be able to look at your purpose statement and evaluate how you're doing. I don't remember who said it first. I think it was actually one of the Greek philosophers, but it's been repeated down through time. An unexamined life is an unproductive life. In other words... If you don't examine your life, if you don't evaluate your life, it's going to be unproductive. Examining our life and looking at our life and judging our life, being, being our worst critic, maybe we would say, is going to lead to productivity. An unexamined life is an unproductive life. A great purpose statement will provide you the standard by which you can review, revise, and improve everything that you do. And we want to keep improving, want to keep growing. Let's talk about that. That's just kind of introductory here. Well, let's talk about a purpose statement. And God has at least five purposes, five biblical purposes for your life, okay? So I'm going to help you with this. That's my job. Let's talk about them here this morning. Number one, God wants me to be a member of his family. God wants me and you to be a member of his family. John 1, 12, we probably all know it. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the right, the authority, the privilege, the idea. To them gave he the right, to become the sons of God. If we receive Jesus Christ, we become the children of God is what that verse is saying. But as many as received him, to them gave you the privilege of becoming the children of God. God loves you and he invites you to become a part of your family. So whoever you are here today, whoever is listening to me today, God wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be a child of God. If you haven't done that, do it today. The Bible is also very clear that following Christ is more than a matter of just believing. It is belonging. We're here today not just because we believe similarly, but we belong here. This is our family, is what the Bible teaches. God wants you to be a member of his family. The Christian life is not a solo act. It's not me going alone or you going alone. There are no good lone wolf Christians in the world. Nobody can be a good Christian by themselves. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, there is not one single example of a Christian outside of the local church. To be a good Christian, you have to be a part of the local church. You have to be a member of the local church. There are no successful lone Christians. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, we fellowship with the saints. We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Household is the old word for family or home. So we're, we're part of the same family. We're part of the same household. We're not just, we don't just believe the same. We, we belong together. Become a part of the church and, and activate your life and your gifts through the local assembly. As a believer, we can never say, we can never say, I have no family. No one cares for me. As a believer, you can't say that. Because for some of us, for some of us, our spiritual family is closer and maybe more important than our biological family, my biological family, by and large, are unbelievers. I got saved after I left home, after I was a young adult, and I've had very little reaction or interaction with my family. Most of them are all unsafe. I'm closer to the spiritual family that I have here than my biological family. I don't reject them, and I hope I can influence them, but I'm really close to my spiritual family. You have a family, look around, this is your family. You belong here. Family members have distinctives. Family members have distinctives. They have identifiable characteristics. I I don't go home very often to Michigan where I grew up, but I was back there many years ago. It's probably been five years since I've been there, but this was probably 15 or 20 years ago. I go home about every five years. And I needed to cash a check and get some cash. And I walked into Clinton National Bank, the little bank in my hometown. There's one stoplight in my hometown. And I walked into the bank and tried to cash a check. And, and the teller said, you're Heinz. Now, let me tell you, I haven't lived at home in that part of the country for like 30 years. And she said, you're Heinz. I can tell by looking at you. I can tell by your voice. She said, which one are you? I said, well, I'm right in the middle of the pack. I'm less I've got older brothers and sisters and younger brothers and sisters, and I live in Colorado. She said, I knew you were a Heinz. Why? Because I look like a Heinz. I do. You saw my brothers. We put them all up here on the stage and say, yeah, they're somehow linked together. We have identifiable characteristics, and that's true of Christians. Christians have identifiable characteristics. We have similar beliefs. We have similar values. We have similar desire. We have similar goals, similar loves. We also have certain responsibilities and privileges as well. So we grow in life by making commitments. Do you know that? We don't grow in life just because we get older or just because we get bigger. We grow in life by making commitments. Most of the time when men get married, they start growing up. Not always. We grow by taking on responsibilities. By making commitments, okay, I'm going to be a husband, I'm going to be a father, I'm going to be a breadwinner. We grow by making commitments, and that's why we live in an age where a lot of young people, I mean, they're young adults, but they don't want to make commitments. They don't want to make commitments to marriage or or to a job or to a house or, or to a church. We grow by making commitments. Don't shun them. Don't run away from them. Accept them. Commitments in marriage, at work, at education, to church. Make a commitment to the local church. Be here for Bible study. Be here for the morning service. I say, we spend a lot of time in the kitchen preparing good meals. That they're tasty, that they're nutritious. My life is spent a large portion in my study here at the office or at home. I consider it my kitchen. I spend a lot of time in preparation, reading books and commentaries in the Bible and working on sermons because I want to serve up to my people, serve up to my family, hot, nutritious, appetizing meals. But if you're not here, you're going to be starving. Number one, God wants me to be a member of his family. Number two, God wants me to be a model of his character. This is a way of personalizing discipleship. That's all I'm doing. God wants me to be a model of his character. That's just personalizing this process called discipleship. God wants every believer to grow up to become Christ-like in their character. Listen to 2 Peter three eighteen. It says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace, that's how we live. Knowledge, that's what we know. That's what we believe. So he wants our knowledge to be growing. He wants our life to be demonstrating. Grow in grace and in knowledge. That's modeling Christian character. 1 Timothy 4.12 gets very specific about areas that we're to be growing in. We are to model the character of Christ. He says there in 1 Timothy 4.12, but be thou an example to the believers. He's writing to young Timothy, who was a young pastor at Ephesus, and he says, Be an example to the believers, to the people that you're ministering to. Be an example to the believers how? In word, that's the word of God, and also your speech, in word, in conduct, how you live, in love, how you love people, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So he lays out to him, Timothy, this is how you model Christian character in these areas. By the way notice the spiritual maturity is not exclusively measured by one's learning but by one's lifestyle Paul's not just talking about knowledge here. That's one thing that's mentioned, but it's not just about knowledge, it's lifestyle. It's not just about our learning, it's our lifestyle. That shows true maturity. In other words, you can fill your head full of Bible fact. You can increase your biblical knowledge of the scriptures and still be immature. It's hard to do that, but you can. You can memorize a bunch of Bible fact, but still be an immature Christian because you have to interact with other believers. And you know what? Christian character is so important because as this culture loses its way, and we are, America is losing our way. We're becoming post-Christian. We're becoming like the first century world. We're becoming a pagan nation. We all know that. We see it happening before our very eye at a very rapid rate in the last several years. Last decade for sure, but especially in the last year or more. So as our Christian culture loses its way and becomes increasingly more pagan, Christian character is going to stand out like never before. We're going to be like bright, shining lights in a very dark world. God wants me to be a model of his character. Third, third. God wants me to be a minister of his grace. Yeah. Every one of us, not just me, not just staff here. Every one of us are ministers of God's grace. Every Christian needs to have a place of ministry of service. So if I was to put you on the spot and say, what's your ministry? What's your place of service? What are you doing for God? Through the local church, what would you say? Every Christian needs to have a place of ministry or service. God expects us to use our talents, our gifts, our opportunities to benefit others. That's replete. It's clear in the New Testament. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each one has received a gift. So he's talking to Christians. He says, each one of us has received a gift. That's the first part of the statement. As each one of us have received a gift, minister it to one another. Take your gift and use it, he says. Minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, if you aren't using your gift that you received that salvation, that you've developed over time, then you're not being a good steward. Use your gift or be a lousy steward and receive no reward. It's kind of the understanding of that verse. That doesn't mean that we demand a place of ministry before proving ourselves. no. We recognize we're to blossom and bloom where we're planted. And our gifts are recognized. We're invited to serve and and we volunteer for service. It would be wise, I think, to be direct with people when they give their lives to Christ. When they get saved... They come into the church. It would be good for us to be very direct with them that they need to understand that God expects them to give a life of service now that they're saved. Now that you're saved, God expects a life of service from you. That's beholden. That's encompassed in the idea of becoming a Christ follower. When we yield ourselves to Christ, he gifts us. And then he directs us. Bible's very clear. that You know the gift passages. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4 are all the gift passages. We discover our gift, we develop our gift, we deploy our gift. When we're saved, we're gifted, and then we're directed. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then verse 6. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, Acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. He's died for you. It's your reasonable service now to live for Him. Your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold but be transformed beginning with the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that you may live out what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He wants you to live out the will of God. And then verse six, you drop down there. It says, having then these gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. We've been saved by his mercy. We've submitted ourselves on the altar. We said, here I am, Lord, God says, okay, I'll give you gifts. And verse six says, now we take our gifts and we minister to the body. God wants you and he wants me to be ministers of his grace. Whatever gifts, talents, abilities that you have, God wants you to take them and use them for his glory and for your eternal reward. I could not begin to tell you in I've been here 38 years. I could not begin to tell you how many times I have witnessed people in our church ministering to one another. I remember a lady whose husband was arrested for a serious crime and he went to prison. She got saved through that event through our church. Then our church began the minister. Somebody paid her kids tuition to Silver State. Somebody else shoveled her driveway and a sidewalk and plowed her driveway in the wintertime. People in our church began to minister, taking meals to her. She was distraught. She was emotionally a basket gate and just minister to them. There are people here today who built ramps for people in wheelchairs in our church. There are people who found out that someone in our church, an older lady who's beginning to lose some of her, her mental capacity was about to lose her home because she was in the rears in her taxes by several years and they paid off her taxes, I've seen that kind of thing happen over and over and over in our church throughout these decades that I've been here where people, you don't, it's not just talking about preaching gifts or teaching gifts. It is taking what God has given to you and ministering to other people and helping them with their needs. God wants me to be a minister of his grace. Ministering grace can mean discipling, it can mean teaching, but it can mean much, much more than that. Number four, I'm trying to move rapidly. God wants me to be a messenger of his love. That is evangelism stated in a personal way. Me, you, taking the story of the love of God to other people. God wants me to be a messenger of his love. Once we have been born again, part of our job is duplication. It's reproduction. It's replication of what has happened in us. God wants me to be a minister of his love. Second Corinthians five, nineteen and twenty says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has now committed to us the word of reconciliation. Jesus has handed the ball off to us. Is now handed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God is pleading through us, we implore you, be reconciled to Christ. Jesus has handed the message of reconciliation to us. We're ambassadors going throughout the world, telling the message of love, telling this message of God's love for the world, of God's love for every lost sinner. And we're pleading with them. That's the very words in Scripture. We're pleading with people. We probably don't feel comfortable picturing ourselves in that kind of a framework. But we're begging people. We're pleading with people. We're imploring them to accept Jesus as their Savior. Pleading with unbelievers to receive God's love and be reconciled. Jude one twenty three describes it this way. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. In other words, they're on fire. They're almost to hell. Their clothes are on fire, and we're snatching them. He goes on to say, snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their life. We're to be pulling them out of that sinful environment, making sure we're not tempted above uh, what we're able ourselves and falling into sin ourselves, but we're snatching them from the very flames of hell, from the very mode of destruction that they find themselves in. We're messengers of God's love. That's evangelism in a personal way. Have you ever wondered why God left you on this earth after saving you, this place of pain and sorrow and heartache and? difficulties why did he leave you here after saving you there are only two things that you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven i could be wrong on that but i think there's only two things that you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven number one is sin number two is witness to lost people which of those two do you think god wants you to be doing right now not sinning it's witnessing to lost people We can't do either of those in heaven. He wants us to be doing the latter now. Number five, God wants me to be a magnifier of his name. He wants me to exalt his name. He wants me to sing praises. He wants me to to glory in the fact that I'm a Christian and I'm saved. Psalm 34 verse three, and by the way, the very verse that we started with today Pastor Zach read from Psalm 22, same thing. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's part of why we're here. We're exalting the name of Jesus. We're exalting the name of the son of God who saved us from our sin, who is the conqueror, who is the sovereign, who is the ruler over all. We're exalting his name. We each have a personal responsibility to worship God. We do that at home, through our devotional life. But we do it more than just that. Beyond our personal devotions, we worship the Lord corporately. And there's no way around it, folks. You can't do that through a Zoom meeting. You can't do that by watching somebody on TV. All the one another's of the New Testament talk about ministering and serving, loving, et cetera, one another's. There's over 20 of them. I read the Wall Street Journal, the Barnard Report that said churches in America since COVID hit two years ago are down anywhere between 25 and 50%. That's where we are. We're down at least 25% in attendance. And I realize that after two years, there's some people that are never, ever coming back. They're never coming back. They have more fear of Omicron or some variant than they have fear of the Lord. And I'm not trying to be mean, Okay? But they're never coming back. They have an excuse, I don't have to go to church because there's something out there that's like a cold. That's what the Omicron is. And I'm not poking fun at it, okay? I know people die of COVID. But they say, okay, I've got an excuse. I'm not going back. At least 25% of them by this time are probably never, ever, ever coming back to church. That's sad to me. That they fear something like that, over their fear of the Lord. And you can't be a good lone wolf Christian. You can't be a good Zoom Christian. No such thing. Sometimes serving God takes risk. We're studying Hebrews chapter 11 in our Sunday school hour. They took risk and many of them died serving God. We might get sick Possibly, but very few people have died. In our congregation, one person has died of COVID. And he was one of my closest friends, as you well know. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse three. We are hardwired to worship God every human being comes into this world to want to exalt something that's greater than ourselves we will all worship someone or something and we can think of anybody that's lost they're worshiping someone or something if we don't worship god we'll find something else to worship whether that be a job or whether that be a hobby or some pleasure or money or even ourselves We're hardwired to worship. We should be worshiping God. We lift our voice in song. We allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and convict us through the word that's being preached. That's part of exalting his name. That's part of worship. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, which is one of the great texts, came out of Jesus' mouth, one of the great texts, on worship he says to the woman, "The hour is coming, and now is when true worships will worship the Father in spirit and in truth that 's with energy." and according to the word. It's not capital S spirit, according to the Holy Spirit's leading. He's talking about with their spirit, with devotion, with excitement, with enthusiasm. That's what it's saying. With spirit and in truth. In other words, according to the word of God. If you're worshiping and it's not according to the biblical framework, then you're not worshiping God. They will worship God in spirit and in truth. For the father seeks such to worship him. Do you get that? God is seeking worshipers. God wants more worshipers. As Piper said so very well, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. We evangelize because those people can't worship God, but after they get saved, then they become worshipers of God. God is seeking such to worship him. He goes on to say in that verse, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. With energy, with enthusiasm, with excitement, with devotion and according to the word of God. Purpose statement. Don't meander through life. Don't be like a river. We got plenty of them out here in Colorado. Look at the South Platte; Meanders all over. Easy paths make for crooked rivers and crooked people. Don't just meander through life. Make your life count. But one way that it will count is developing a personal purpose. David, God, I know what you want me to do. I'm not just like the person next to me, but I know I have gifts. I have abilities. I'm your child. I want to fulfill my purpose so I don't come to the end of my life and feel like I wasted it. Don't waste your life. We may look at these as responsibilities to fulfill, but they're really privileges to enjoy. It's noteworthy that they are exclusive to the church, to Christian believers. Unbelievers can't do any of these things. Only we can. Worship helps you focus on God. Fellowship helps you face life's problems. Discipleship fortifies your faith. Ministry helps you find and use your talents. Evangelism helps you fulfill your purpose, your passion. Let's find greater purpose for our lives in the days ahead through the word of God and its instruction. Let's pray together. Father, Sometimes at points in our life, we stop and evaluate which is so good, so important. We evaluate our life. We evaluate where we are. We maybe evaluate our family, our marriage, our job, many things. And we know self-reflection can be very healthy. May the Holy Spirit help us in this matter to evaluate who we are, what we're doing, what needs to change how we're glorifying you, how we're using our talents. So, Lord, today we would ask that you'll work in us and draw us closer to yourself. Draw us closer to what our walk should be with you, even through this time of communion as we reflect, as we confess sin that may be an impediment in our life, as we cry out to you for help and strength and grace to be changed. We pray that you'll hear our prayers. Draw us to yourself. And so we ask that you would delight in our lives and that you would use us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.